So you can go ahead and turn to Romans chapter 1. We'll be in Romans. Romans chapter 1. And while you're turning there, I just want to say to the children, I was a lot like you at one point in my life. I sat in the pews listening to the preacher, and I always thought, this is so boring. But what I didn't realize was happening, hear hear me, hear me though, what I didn't realize was happening is I was slowly though being shaped by God's word. As I sat, and though I didn't understand everything the preacher said, and I don't know if it was because he was unclear, I don't know, (laughs) whatever, just know that it's worth it's worthwhile, and it, it is shaping you more than you know. So Romans chapter one, starting in verse sixteen, and we're just going to do verses sixteen and seventeen. And if you if you don't have your Bible, it's up in front of you. It's on the screen there in front of you. He says this: For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and also to the Greek. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Okay, let's pray. Father, we pray this morning. I pray, Lord, that your word, as it is sown, would reap a harvest 10,000 times what I could know. 10,000 times what any of us could know. That, Lord, as it, as it is sown in our hearts here this morning, that we would be receptive, that our hearts would be tender to you. Do this, we pray in us, we ask. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you're taking notes in front of you, the, the title for today is simply, Unashamed of the Gospel, The Path to New Reformation. Unashamed of the gospel, the path to new reformation. Now, I want to be clear. Today is special because it's, it's the day we celebrate the Protestant Reformation. And for you who don't know what that is, it's simply a, an event in church history that happened where Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses on the door of the, of the church at Witten, Wittenberg. And it's that event that took place that marks, at some level, the, the crumbling of the Roman Catholic Church and the upbuilding of the Protestant Reformation. At that point in time, there was the printing press, and there was many other things that happened. But I just want you to know that that's what today we're celebrating today as well. But if you're taking notes, there should be one thing in front of you. There should be like a little slip of paper. If you get nothing else, get this. It says, if we desire to see a Reformation in our day... If we desire to see a reformation in our day, we will need an unashamed witness of the gospel that by faith clings to the power and righteousness of God for salvation. Let me say that one more time. If we desire to see a reformation in our day, we will need... We will need an unashamed witness to the gospel that by faith clings to the power and righteousness of God for salvation. Now, now, why would we even look or talk about the Reformation? Well, uh, Michael Reeves, he says this about it. I think it's very helpful. He says, marking the anniversary 
of the Reformation isn't about reveling in past glories or pining for idyllic golden age. We celebrate, celebrate Reformation Day because when the church was in deep darkness, hear this, because when the church was in deep darkness, God shone the light of His gospel afresh. Luther made a discovery that changed the world then and continues to transform lives and cultures today. What the German monk uncovered in his Bible is as explosive and wonderful now as it ever was. Now, I want to give you some context. We talk about Martin Luther and we talk about the Reformation, but the church, the Roman Catholic church that is, at the time of the 1500s, it was the only church around. It's not like they had denominations where you could be like, well, I don't really like the Roman Catholic Church. I'll go down to the Baptist Church. They didn't have that. It was, it was, there was one holy Catholic Church, and you were either a part of that or you were anathema. You were not, you were not a part of the church at all. But the tricky thing about the Roman Catholic Church is to stand in opposition to that church was also to stand in opposition to the government. Okay, so, so for someone to make a stand and say, I defy the Pope of Rome, you're essentially saying, I'm, I'm wanting a death sentence, essentially. And listen to what Martin Luther or basically then goes on to say. There's a point where he, he's convinced of what Holy Scripture says, and he says this. He says, unless I am convinced by the testimony of the Holy Scriptures, or by evident reason, for I believe neither Pope nor councils alone, as it is clear, they have erred repeatedly and contradicted themselves. I consider myself convicted by the testimony of the Holy Scriptures, which is my basis. My conscience is captured by the Word of God. Thus I cannot and will not recant, because acting against one's conscience is neither safe nor sound. And here's his, here's his famous line, here I stand, I can do no other. God help me. Amen. Brothers and sisters, we need a generation that stands along with Martin Luther in that sense and says, unless Holy Scripture encouraged me in this direction, here I stand. And if I have to stand alone, I will stand alone. Martin Luther is such an iconic figure is because that day he did stand alone. No one else stood there and agreed with him. He was standing at risk to his life and he says, here I stand. So brothers and sisters, we need a new reformation in that sense. We need brothers and sisters and churches that are filled with people that say, here I stand. Every other denomination goes in a terrible direction, here I stand. Now, now we're going to look at a text today that actually was one that really changed Luther. He would argue that this is one of the texts that actually converted him. So I just wanted us to look at it today. And it's in the book of Romans, and it's really this this two verses that are the summary statement of the book of Romans. If you want to just understand Romans, understand these two statements that we're going to read, read today. And he says in verse 16, he says, now this is the Apostle Paul speaking, okay? We're going to talk about Luther a lot, but we're also going to talk about the Apostle Paul. And this is what he says. He says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. And if you're taking notes, see there, it's just unashamed of the gospel. And it's unhindered bold, boldness unashamed of the gospel, unhindered boldness. Now, Paul's assuming something as he says this. And that, that word for ashamed is, is the feeling you would get, if you, children, if you're here. It's that feeling you get when your parents do something really, really embarrassing that you're like, oh, I just, 
wish you didn't do that. You know what I mean? That, that kind of a feeling? Maybe you don't have that. I remember that. I remember that feeling. But it's a, it's a sense of embarrassment. And what Paul's saying is he does not have that for the gospel. He's saying, I am unashamed. That feeling of, of pain, of thinking other people are going to look down on me, he says, I have none of that. So why would Paul say then that others might be ashamed of the gospel? Isn't, isn't this the message of Jesus? Why would people be ashamed of this message? And I want you to see that the cross of Christ is offensive. The cross of Christ is offensive. It's a stumbling block. Now, in the, in the minds of people that Paul was writing to, the reality of the cross was a lot more bleak. It was a lot more... Um, it would be the equivalent of our own, in our own day to something like the electric chair, an instrument of torture, an instrument of death. And he says that this is our message. He says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, this, this, cross, this cross that Jesus bore for our sins. He says, I'm not ashamed of it. Crosses in Paul's day were reserved for criminals and the worst of the worst. And Christians come along and say, hey, the worst of the worst, you know that instrument you use for the worst of the worst? That's our Savior. So you can imagine just how like, offensive this would have been in their minds. And imagine, too, he's writing this letter to this huge, prestigious city of Rome. So, so maybe he's thinking, well, we should be more sophisticated than that, Paul. Give us another message. No. It would have been a temptation for Paul to paint the cross of Jesus in pretty colors. But listen to what he says in another place. 1 Corinthians 1, 18, he says, For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And he goes on and he says, For Jews request a sign and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified. To the Jews, a stumbling block, and to the Greeks, foolishness. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. The cross was regarded as foolishness. The cross was regarded as a stumbling block to Jews. And a very fleshly temptation for Paul would be like, well, you know, that, that's the thing we hold our faith on, but let me paint it up. It's really actually better than what you think. No, he doesn't say that. He says, I'm unashamed of the gospel. And you know, we, we need to have the same posture in our own hearts toward our own culture. Let me give you just one, what I would call one cultural atmosphere that we're going to have to address in our own day. It's basically called moralistic therapeutic deism. And I know that's a big word, but it's simply moralistic in the sense that you do good things, therapeutic that it makes you feel good, and deism in the sense that it's just some God generally. Listen to the six elements, that, or five elements that he talks about. The, the next slide there. He said, these are the five things they believe. Simply, a, a, a God exists who created and ordered the world and watches over all of human life. Two, God wants people to be good and nice and fair to each other as taught in the Bible and by most other world religions. Or three, the central goal of life is to be happy, to feel good about oneself. Or four, God does not need, God does not need to be particularly involved in one's life except when God is needed to resolve a problem. And five, good people go to heaven when they die. I want to be very clear. This is the cultural air that we swim in. 
And, and, and kids, this is the cultural error you will inherit someday. And the question is, will we be unashamed of the gospel in the face of these ridiculous realities? A person, and why these are so destructive is they, a person can think they're a Christian and be drastically deceived. They, they believe in God generally speaking somewhere up there in the heavens, but he doesn't really involve me unless I'm really in trouble. Then I go to him. But when we start holding to the biblical gospel around us, people will not like it. I want to be very clear. People will not like it. Our own culture will not like it. We will be looked down upon. If someone is found to be a Christian, a true Christian, that doesn't hold to this, yeah, 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 you can be a Christian, just don't tell anybody about it. You can be a Christian, just don't ever say that ever, and all people don't go to heaven. Because we don't like that. That doesn't make us feel good. For three. And Paul's not offering that here. He's not offering a shame-free life. He's saying he's unashamed of the gospel, but he's being shamed by things similar to this. And he says in verse 16 of Romans 1, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. So the cross of Christ is offensive. The cross of Christ is also countercultural. It's against the grain of the culture. The cross of Christ is countercultural. It's against the grain. Now, the city of Rome had a little different barrier than our own. Uh, all cult, uh, our culture says you can believe whatever you want, just don't bring it into the public square. You can believe whatever you want, just don't let it affect your life at all, because <laughs> that'd be silly. But their culture was a lot different. Paul's culture was one that said, the, the Roman culture was one that said, Caesar is king. Our, our ruler, Caesar, he's the one who rules the world. And we should all pay homage to him. He should be the one we come and worship. And, and the message for Paul's day was one of saying, he's fighting against somebody that's saying, he demands ultimate allegiance. But in, in, in Paul's day, he's literally saying, that's not the Christian message. The Christian message is, Jesus is king. Jesus is Lord over all. Though it looks like Caesar's running everything, we believe Jesus is on the throne. Now you can see how these two views are going to collide. That They're saying Caesar is king, and Christians are saying, no, 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 Jesus is king. They both can't be king. So what's a Christian supposed to do? Well, just go home. Just, just go home and be real quiet. You can have your worship gatherings. No, 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 no. Listen to what Jesus says in another place. This is even what Jesus expected to happen. In Mark 8, he says this. Mark 8, 34, he says, In calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, that means if anyone would follow him, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. So notice what Jesus even says. He says, If you want to follow me, die to yourself. If you want to follow me, then take your life and die to it. Because he goes on and says, for whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, of him will the Son of Man be ashamed. Also, when he comes in glory of his father, in the glory of his father with the holy angels. And, and Jesus says the same thing that Paul's saying there. 
He's saying that if you want the whole world, that's fine. You're going to forfeit your soul. But if you want me, then die to yourself. So what does all this mean for reformation? Well, it means simply this. The way of reformation is to be unashamed of the gospel. The way of reformation is to be unashamed of the gospel. This will inevitably mean that others will think we've lost our minds. This will mean that others will look down on us. This will mean that we will not be the most popular in the room. This will mean that, and I would argue that if you don't feel this at some level, if you feel no tension from anybody else outside the world, maybe you've had a very shameful gospel. Maybe. Martin Luther, a man who was credited, I want you to think about this, we were talking about this just the other day, who was credited with sparking the Protestant Reformation, do you think he knew in the midst of nailing the 95 theses to the, to the door? Do you think he knew he was in the midst of revival? Like, if God were really to do revival here, what do you think it would, do you think we would be like, man, we see it, here's the revival. Or look around, look at it all. When Martin Luther was in the literal midst of revival, you know what he felt? Deathly persecution. And that should like deeply humble us. It deeply humbles me because I do not feel that level of persecution. Do you think he was planning this kind of impact around him? That 500 years later we'd still be talking about him? No. Actually, he literally had a hammer and a nail and this piece of paper that he written and he had nothing else. And he's like, this is my conviction. This is what I believe God has said in his word. And he had nothing else. He was unashamed of the gospel. And he was faithful And he was unashamed of the gospel. Listen to what Paul goes on to say in verse 16, though. He says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it, that is the gospel, is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. So it is the power of God. The power of God. Paul says he's not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God. So we're going to look at two things here under this heading, and it's going to be simply what it's not and what it is. So what is the power of God? Well, the first thing is it's not advice. It's not advice. It's not you should. When we talk about the gospel, or Jesus' life, death, burial, and resurrection, it's not advice, it's news. We cannot speak of it as though as it's one among many options. We hear people say, well, well, I'm not a Christian. And we're like, oh, that's okay. Go your merry way. No. It's, it's not you should follow Jesus because he's better than drugs. Though he is. He, he's not Jesus among all the other gods of the world. It's not advice. It is news. It's also not helpful. And what I mean by that is it's not a little push. Just a, just a, little, a little nudge. Our human condition continually seeks to think we're not really that bad. We're only just a little bit messed up. We're only just a little broken. We only need a little push. Brothers and sisters, we need power from on high. And it's only found in the gospel. It's also not information. Simple facts. It's not information. 
It's not something we can just sit here and scientifically be like, oh yes, here is the gospel. Take some gospel. No. It's fundamentally news. Now I want to talk about one practice that I think actually lines up very well with how the Roman Catholic Church was undermining the power of God. Let me give you just one. You've probably heard about these before. But it's the, it's the sale of indulgences, which was, which was very common around Luther's day. Now, the sale of indulgences was also undergirded by the fact that the Roman Catholic Church believed there was a place called purgatory. And our culture is very actually aware of purgatory. You hear, I hear purgatory mentioned a lot, actually, in our culture. And it's basically like a halfway house for hell, or a halfway house for heaven. <laughs> that, that'd be what it is. It's basically a place that you go, that they came up with, to say, this is where you go to be purified to get to heaven. And Luther, and the day of Luther, they, they would basically come around. So picture your grandma passes away. And they would come, the Roman Catholic Church would send people around to be like, oh, we heard Grandma Betty, she just passed away. And you know she's in purgatory now. But here's the good news. This is what they would tell them. Here's the good news. Your grandma died and she's suffering right now in purgatory. But if you give us some money, the Pope will give her less time in purgatory. Okay, do you, do you hear how ridiculous that is? That's nowhere in Scripture. We see that in nowhere in Scripture. We could get to one day how that came about. But basically, if you pay these indulgences, then she'll get out of purgatory quicker. You know, you love Gr- Grandma Betty. She's such a sweetie pie, but she's burning right now. But you could help her. Here, just give us, give us $20, and we'll, we'll take it to the Pope, and he will bring her out of purgatory. That's what they were saying. And Luther is like, no, this is a whole system based upon a false doctrine of salvation that said you can merit it, that you can earn it. And we laugh at that system back then, 500 years ago, and we're like, they were thinking they could get people out of purgatory? That's ridiculous. But we do very similar things in our own society. Well, we'll go to church every Sunday. Well, I go to church every Sunday, so therefore God will, he will, he will look more favorably upon me. I can't tell you the number of people you've heard, and I know you have know people that do this. Oh, I don't cuss, so therefore God must like me more. Or, or I do good things, so therefore God must like me more. And brothers and sisters, this has nothing to do with the power of God for salvation. So he says in verse 16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation. Not indulgences, not good works, not things we do in the flesh. He says, it, the gospel, is the power of God for salvation. And here's what I want you to see. It's intentional. It's intentional. It has a purpose. It's, it's for salvation. The power of God has a purpose. And the purpose is the salvation of souls. And this was not something the Pope could grant. I'm a visual learner. I don't know about you. But I want you to take a look at this image. Since the Garden of Eden, humanity was willingly and actively choosing to rebel against God. And what this created in us, not just in us, but was actually God's wrath toward sin. This is what was coming. This is what God promised. This is why death had to happen, because death is judgment. People would not live forever. They would actually die. That was judgment. But ultimately, one day, there would be a greater judgment. And all of the Old Testament builds up. God continues to promise his people and say, I will save you. I will send salvation for you. 
He promised to send us salvation, and the people didn't know what that salvation looked like. Now go to the next image. When we talk about the power of salvation, we're talking about, now I want you to picture this umbrella as Christ. What Christ has done is very simply what this illustration has done. Wrath is continuing to come against people's sin and humanity, but Christ has actually stepped in, and he is the one who's taking the wrath of God on himself and allowing us as a free gift to us to come in under that umbrella. And the illustration is powerful because we are the weak and the needy ones. Romans 10, 9 through 10 says this, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your hearts that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Do you hear that again? Let me read that one more time. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your hearts God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified or made right, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. This is the salvation that Paul was talking about. This is the salvation that Luther began to realize, wait a minute, so you're telling me like me paying for Aunt Betty doesn't get her out of hell? Yes, that's what we're telling you. And more so, the only thing that will ultimately save a person is Christ. Here's the other thing I want you to see about it, is it's also impartial. He says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Now, I want you to notice something in that, in that verse. It says, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. That means that everyone who does not believe, at some level, what we're saying is that the power of God is not for all people. This is not some universal power that people stand back and are like, wow, you know, I'm really glad Jesus did that. And you ask them and they're like, are you a Christian? And they're like, well, no. It's like, well, then what are you glad about? You, you, you don't have the power. The power resides in the cross. The power resides in Christ. But in Paul's case, this is an amazing thing what he's saying. He's saying that the Jews would have considered themselves, the Jews at the time would have considered themselves the ones who in, were to inherit salvation. And the Greeks were just the ones, they were outside of that. They weren't the ones who were going to inherit it. But Paul comes along and says, for in, he says, for salvation is for everyone who believes, the Jew first and also to the Greek. Listen, listen to what John 3 says. We all know this. John, John 3, 16. But we never, read, we never read two verses beyond it. You notice that? We never read. People quote this all the time, but they never read the next two verses. Listen to them. It says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. Beautiful, amazing, good news. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. And here it is. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe in Him, yeah, whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the Son of, only Son of God. What does this mean for Reformation? Well, simply, the way of Reformation rests fully, completely in the power of God for sinners. Brothers and sisters, this means that the power of God doesn't rest in a decision that you've made. This means that the power of God doesn't rest in feelings that you have toward God. The power of God right now for us rests outside of us. 
And that is utterly good news. That is so good news because it means it doesn't depend on us. It doesn't depend on us. It means that our weakness, in our weakness, he is strong. It means that we don't, we don't have to be great, but we can point to the one who is great. So the way of Reformation rests in the power of God for sinners. Verse 17, listen to what he goes on and says. Well, just verse 16 and 17. He says, for I'm not ashamed of the gospel. For it, that is the gospel, is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. To the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it, that is the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. Or or beginning and ending in faith. As it is written... The righteous shall live by faith. Now, you know, Luther hated that verse. Listen to what he said about that verse. I think this is really interesting. I love hearing church fathers that like, don't like certain verses because it, it really rubbed him the wrong way. Now, this, this was when he was unconverted. He was not a believer at this time. He says, I had been captivated with extraordinary passion for understanding Paul in the epistle of the Romans. But a single word in chapter 1, verse 17, the one we're reading, he says, it, and here he quotes it, in it the righteousness of God is revealed, stood in my way. That's what he says. It stood in my way. Listen to what he says. For I hated that word, righteousness of God, which I had been taught to understand is the righteousness with which God punishes unrighteous sinners. So, so Luther's saying that he's been taught that phrase in verse 17 is about God's righteousness punishing sinners. And he hated it. He hated it. You know why he hated it? Because he knew he was under judgment. He knew he was under judgment and he knew he wasn't right with God. So I want us to look at this last section, which is the righteousness of God revealed. He says, for in it, this is Paul again, Romans 1.17, for in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. No, it's not that God was punishing sinners. I want you to see this. But it was the fact that God was giving his righteousness to sinners by taking on their unrighteousness. And this is utterly good news. But I want to look at what it's not and then what it is. It's not, like we've seen, but a little different, it's not what we obtain. It's not of us. It's not of us. And that sometimes bothers people. It's not, what do you mean it's not of us? Well, it's not of us in the sense that we can do nothing toward it. Righteousness is not something we gain in ourselves. It's not something we get with from religious activities. No amount of church services, no amount of lists of sins we haven't done, no lists of virtues that we've pursued. None of it makes a man righteous. So we can't obtain it. But the witness of the scriptures are very clear. We need it. We can't obtain it, but we need it. We can't earn it, but we desperately have to have it. So it's, this last section is, is, it is what we need. It is what we need. We don't have it, though. So it's what we need, but we don't have it. There's the great tension of the scriptures. It's what we desperately need, but it's what we desperately don't have. Though we cannot obtain right standing with God ourselves, we need it in order to stand before Him. To one day stand in the presence of God, me and you need to be righteous. We need to be righteous. But the great problem of the Bible is we cannot obtain it. 
which is what Luther, which, what, which is what led Luther to write, later write or say, he said this, and this is what others said about him. He said, I forget who this quote's from, but Luther came to realize, this is it, that salvation was a gift for the guilty, not a reward for the righteous. I want you to hear that one more time. Maybe write that one even in your Bible. That salvation was not a gift, salvation was a gift for the guilty, not a reward for the righteous. Salvation was not something for righteous people to have. It was not something for good people to obtain. It was a gift for wicked, sinful people. And he says again in verse 17, For in it, that is in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. And the beauty of the gospel becomes plain at this point. It's that sinners are made righteous before a holy God by the righteousness of another. And it's simply this, it is outside of us. It comes from outside of us. It's, or, or you could call it an alien righteousness. That's what Luther would call it. He called it an alien righteousness. To say that it is an alien righteousness simply means that it's foreign to us. It's not in us. It's not something we earn. It's not something we obtain. But it's something that comes to us from outside of us. And then listen to Luther again, him wrestling through this. He says, you mean here, this is what he says, Paul is not talking about the righteousness by which God himself is righteous, but a righteousness that God gives freely by his grace to people who don't have righteousness of their own. There, there's, there it is. There's the dynamic. And this is what he went on to say. When I discovered that, he says, I was born again of the Holy Ghost. And the doors of paradise swung open and I walked through them. Because he realized in that moment that salvation was not something he did. It was not something that he brought. It was something that God gave into him. That God, the righteous judge, becomes the one who both judges and justifies. Listen to what Romans, I mean, you could just read the book of Romans. But listen to what it says. Verses 21 of 321. He says, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested or revealed apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. And he says, for there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Don't, don't be done there. So that's the first piece. All have sinned. All are under that wrath that's coming. And he says, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. We could go on and look at Romans over and over again. But the way of reformation, if you're taking notes, the way of reformation hopes in the righteousness of God given to sinners. And this, brothers and sisters, is the best news I could tell you today. That your righteousness before God doesn't depend on you. It has nothing to do with you, actually. It has everything to do with God Almighty giving you an alien righteousness that's not yours. You don't deserve it. You have no claim on it, but we cling to it. It's not the righteousness of people who bring about salvation. It's actually God's righteousness revealed in the person of Jesus, given to sinful people. The way of reformation is not of this world. The way of reformation will not look like progress in this world. 
It will not look like progress in this world. The way of this world will continue to try to build their own righteousness. They'll continue to try to build our own resume, their own resume. And brothers and sisters, we don't have to do that. We have an alien righteousness given to us. And listen to what he goes on and says. He says in verse 17, For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith, beginning and ending in faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. And Paul here is quoting the Old Testament, but here's what it's not. Again, it's not what we bring. It's not what we bring. It's not a reward for the righteous. But it is a gift that God gives. It is what God gives. It's a gift to sinners. Let me give you an illustration just to close us. The illustration is from Michael Reeves, but he's, he's riffing off of what Luther says. He says, Luther argued that the gospel was breathtakingly simple. It was breathtakingly simple. And he said the good news could be found in a story of, of a wealthy king representing Jesus who marries a debt-ridden prostitute representing one who trusts him. The girl could never have made herself a queen on her own. But the king comes along, full of love for her. With that, she is his. And the prostitute becomes a queen. He takes and bears all her debt. And she now shares his boundless wealth and status. It's not that she earned it. She didn't have a queen. She didn't become a queen by behaving royally. I want to say that one more time. She didn't become a queen by behaving royally. But when the king made his marriage promise, he changed her status. Then listen to what he goes on and says. He says, when Jesus died on the cross, he absorbed and dealt with all our guilt and failure. And out of sheer love, he now shares with those who trust him all his righteousness and life. And there, brothers and sisters, in lies the gospel. There in lies the gospel. That, that Jesus, being the wealthy king who came to earth, he indwelt himself, he tabernacled amongst us to do what? To marry a debt-ridden, sinful, wicked, sinfully wicked bride who didn't deserve it. And yet, it's not because she acted royally that he did it. It's because she was what she was. And he chose to lift her up to a status of queen. Listen to what Luther goes on and says. He says, Her sins cannot now destroy her since they are laid upon Christ and swallowed up by him. And he says, And she has that righteousness in Christ, her husband, which she may boast of as her own and say, If I have sinned, yet my Christ in whom I believed has not sinned. And all his is mine, and all mine is his. The way, brothers and sisters, of reformation is by faith that trusts in the gift of, in the gift of God. The way of reformation is by faith that trusts in the gift of God. Brothers and sisters, if we desire to see a reformation in our day, we will need an unashamed witness of the gospel that by faith clings to the power of God and the righteousness of God for salvation. Listen to Romans 10, 17, just one last quote. 
He says, so faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. And this is nothing we do. This is nothing we bring. It's simply to the cross we cling. Crystal, would you mind playing nothing but the blood? Just to, just to, I want you guys just to reflect on what you've heard this morning. Again, it, it's nothing new in that sense. It is the old, old, old good news. It is the old good news. And if there's an area this morning that you're not, you see, hey, you know, I'm not trusting in that righteousness that's from another, just repent of that as, as Crystal plays nothing but the blood.